Good morning and surprise. So with both of our pastors sick this week, I'll be filling in and I can make you two promises. Number one, my sermon will not be as good as Pastor Mark's or Pastor Kevin's would have been. But number two, it will be shorter. <laughs> Our text today begins in Acts chapter 6. Before we dive in, I'd like to acknowledge the day. Happy New Year's. Um, obviously, New Year's tradition is to make resolutions. I don't know if any of you made your New Year's resolution. No, don't even bother, right? Well, I... I was interested to see what the most popular New Year's resolutions are, and so I looked that up, and there's a company called Statista who surveyed 500 adults in the U.S., and here's the top 10 New Year's resolutions. See if any of these relate to you. Number 10, I'm going to go in opposite order. Number 10, save money. That's one for me, too. Number 9, quit smoking. As Mark Twain famously said, quitting smoking is easy. I've done it thousands of times. <laughs> Number eight, spend less time on social media. Any of you younger folks going to commit to that? Number seven, reduce stress in my job. Number six, do better at my job. Number five, find a new job. Number four is travel. Number three, spend more time with family and friends. That's a good one. And then number two, most popular New Year's resolution, diet, eat healthier. The diet starts Monday, as usual. And then finally, the number one New Year's resolution. Any guesses? This year, I'm going to... There it is, exercise. So this survey was from 2021. Those are the results. So I looked at several other surveys from different years uh, just to see how they matched up. And it seems that every single year, exercise is number one or number two. So you would think that if all these people followed through with that resolution, that it would fall further and further down the list until eventually it wasn't on the list at all, I would think. But I guess that tells us a little bit about human nature. So today I want to talk about three exercises or resolutions, if you will, for our spiritual health. Most of these that I just listed were for physical or mental well-being. Let's, let's think about three things that we can do in the new year for our spiritual health. So full disclosure, first of all. Uh, my message this morning is basically a deeper dive into the message that I shared at Papoose Pond this past summer. So if you were at Papoose Pond this past summer, this morning might be a little chance for you to take a Sunday morning nap. I'm okay with that if you've already heard this. But again, our text today is from the book of Acts. Particularly, we're going to talk about the story of Stephen. Stephen, one of the most well-known and first martyrs for the cause of Christ. 
The book of Acts is an amazing recounting of the very early church. Jesus Christ had just lived, been crucified, rose again, appeared to many witnesses, and then ascended to heaven with a promise to come again for his own. And now Luke, the author of Acts, writes the accounting of what those days were like. So this is the very early church. How incredibly exciting to be the first witnesses to start spreading the gospel. And what must it have been like to hear the gospel from the eyewitnesses, from those that had been with Christ. However, this was also an incredibly dangerous time to spread the gospel or to become a believer, to be baptized. Now, last summer at Papoose Pond, where'd she go? Eva Schroeder was baptized, and I said to Eva, and I say all this to all of you younger folks, you may not have to fear for your life because of your baptism, but you may lose some friends for your faith. You may face ridicule along the way from peers, from teachers, from professors. You'll face confusion and doubts. Christ knew that ridicule, and the disciples knew all about confusion and doubt. And Stephen followed in his Savior's footsteps and paid the ultimate cost with his life. So I say to you young believers, and in fact to all of us, you've got your family and all of us, your Christian friends and your church family, and we're here to encourage each other, to help each other. And today, I'm here to remind us of Stephen's faith and courage. So in this exciting and dangerous time, we find the story of Stephen, a story that R.C. Sproul calls one of the most remarkable accounts of raw courage recorded in the entire Bible. I see three points or exercises or resolutions, however you want to think of it, that we can learn from and apply from the life and death of Stephen. So let's start in Acts chapter 6, where we first discover Stephen. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. Now in these days the disciples were increasing in number. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So Stephen, we see, is chosen to serve the needs of the church. They needed people that they could count on, people who had a burden for the needs of their fellow believers. And isn't that exactly what we desire here in our church even today? 
But Stephen soon caught the attention of the enemies of the gospel. Continuing on in verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Again, R.C. Sproul comments, Can't you just see these religious men nervously shifting in their seats as they look into the face of this brave man. And the high priest said, are these things so? So I have several lawyers in our extended family, and I'm sure that they would agree that if you have somebody on the stand in a trial, you don't ask a question that you don't want the answer to or know the answer to. And I think the high priest should have remembered that old adage, if you don't want the answer, don't ask the question. Because when he asked Stephen, is this so? Are these things true? The next 50 verses are Stephen's response to that question. Stephen recounts the entire history of the nation, their habitual rebellion against God and his messengers, culminating in what I've titled Stephen's Last Stand. So now we're in chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen looks at this very powerful council of leaders and says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen likely knew what was going to happen next. Now when they heard these, these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him, and then they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. What can we learn from that kind of courage? We can compare it to our light and momentary afflictions. We can take heart when we get discouraged 
and we can recommit to stand firm in the faith. That is our first resolution for this year. Stand firm in the faith. Even in the face of ridicule and opposition. This brings me to my second point and to the part of Stephen's story that takes an unexpected and incredible turn. After laying it all on the line, standing for the truth to the point of death, listen to what happens next. Chapter 7, verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Don't hold this sin against them. Why didn't he say, Father, strike them down, curse them to the pit of hell, do to them what they did to Jesus and what they're doing to me? The reason is simple, incredibly difficult, but simple. He was following his Savior's example. We all remember the words of Christ on the cross as he was being crucified. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Point one, stand firm in the faith. Point two, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Corey Ten Boom, whose family died in the Nazi concentration camps. Their crime was hiding Jews in their home. Uh, she recounts this story in her book, The Hiding Place. I won't describe the atrocities that she underwent in the concentration camp, but as you can imagine, they were horrific. I'm gonna condense this story down a little bit, but this is from her book. I was speaking at a church service in Munich when I saw him, a former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at the Ravensbrück concentration camp. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, he said. To think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity, 
And so I again breathed the silent prayer, Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. A current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. It is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with that command, the love itself. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, the love itself. Corey Ten Boom loved her enemies with God's love and through God's strength. And Stephen loved his enemies. Even as the stones were hailing down upon him, he loved his enemies even as they were killing him. We have enemies. The church has enemies. Goodness and truth have enemies. Can we stand firm in the faith and love our enemies? Not in our own strength, but with God, all things are possible. Point three. Whenever I read these next verses, I'm startled. Every time. I'm startled because I forget. I forget what God did. So I intentionally didn't harp on one detail in verse 58 of chapter 7, but I'm going to read that passage again and continue into the beginning of chapter 8. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So we all know who Saul is, right? Jesus later met him on the road to Damascus and completely changed his life. He became Paul, the Apostle Paul, the author of half of the New Testament. My third and final point is that God can change anything. Saul didn't stand a chance. God had his eye on him. He was part of God's plan, 
and he would help spread the gospel of Jesus Christ as much or more than anyone else. God has a plan. God is going to do what God is going to do. Saul had a plan. He was going to squash out this gospel message. God had a different plan. Paul was going to spread this gospel message. Are you discouraged this morning? Do things not seem to make any sense? Are doubts creeping in? I encourage you to stand firm in the faith. Stand firm. Are you angry this morning? Is bitterness toward your enemies and the enemies of the gospel starting to creep in and strangle all charity from you? I encourage you to love your enemies. Pray for them. Are you confused this morning? Are you facing situations that seem hopeless? I encourage you to remember, God can change anything. Jesus changes everything. I like to imagine what it must have been like for Paul and Stephen to meet in heaven. I picture Paul running to Stephen crumpling at his feet and saying, I am so sorry, I am so sorry, I am so sorry a thousand times. And I like to imagine Stephen lifting Paul to his feet, giving him the biggest bear hug ever, and saying, my brother, my brother, we are both sinners saved by grace. I'll leave you with these thoughts. We don't always see the whole story. We can often get discouraged. But as we look at the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, and we consider Stephen, the servant of Christ, let's follow his example as he followed Christ. Stand firm in the faith. Love your enemies. Pray for them. And remember, God can change anything. And Jesus changes everything. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We recount the early church, what it must have been like. And we thank you for the bravery and the courage of men like Stephen. Thank you that this is all recorded for us to read, and to share with others. Lord, mostly we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, for his life, death, resurrection, and his return. And we ask that you help us to remember Stephen's example and to stand firm in the faith this year, to love our enemies, and to always remember that you can change anything. Thank you in Jesus' name.